0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen.
1: Father, we thank you for this time that we have to meet together today. We ask that you would focus our hearts on the message that you want to share with us this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds to receive what you want to pass on to us today. We pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would work in our lives to transform us and bring about the results that you want to accomplish in our lives today. We commit this to you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. About the time that I was in elementary school, my parents said, hey, let's take a family vacation. So I was pretty excited about that. I have a sister. She's two years younger than me. She was pretty excited about that. We were going to hop in the car. We were going to make our trip from Richmond, Virginia, where we were living, all the way down to Orlando, Florida. We were going to check out Disney World. And so my sister and I were pretty pumped about that as we hopped into the car and we started making our way down Interstate 95. And we didn't have a DS player, we didn't have a DVD player in our car, we didn't have an iPod or iPad or any of that. Entertainment for us on long road trips was to look out the window. And so that was exciting. We were kind of just sitting there in the back seat and we were just looking out the window for hours and hours and hours on end. And there came a certain point somewhere along our trip down I-95 that I started noticing this billboard and that billboard, and I started paying more attention because I kept seeing more and more billboards, and they were all talking about the same thing. And I started getting really excited as I saw another and another, and I started thinking, what is this place called south of the border? I was like, wow, in the last three miles, I think we just passed like 17 billboards, and they're all talking about that. And so I'd never heard of that before. I mean, I was thinking, I thought Disney World was going to be the highlight of this trip. No one ever told me about South of the Border. This place looks awesome. And so I was all pumped, and I'm like, Dad, Dad, can we stop? And my sister chimes in, Dad, Dad, can we stop? So my dad, he wanted to make good time, but he's like, okay, we'll go ahead and we'll stop so you guys can see what this place is all about. So we take the exit, and we pull up, and we have finally arrived at South of the Border. And I get out of the car, and I look around, and I think, oh, I mean, I was expecting to see Pedro. He sounded really fun, and I was like, what about this and that? And there's all this cool stuff, but I felt kind of let down with the whole thing. I was like, man, all these signs have been pointing to south of the border, and then when I get there, it's not nearly as exciting as I was hoping it was. felt a little bit let down. But what we are doing as we go through this series in the Gospel of John is we are looking at signs that will never let us down, because these signs or indicating something a whole lot more exciting than south of the border. These signs are going to help direct us to the identity of Jesus Christ and who He truly is. And so we've already gone through several of these signs over the last few weeks. As a brief recap here, what we'll see is that the first few signs we took a look at were the time when Jesus turned water to wine, when He healed the official son, and when He healed the paralytic And so, the last few weeks, we've spent some time camping out in those passages and learning those lessons that God would want us to learn. And today, we're going to move on over to John chapter 6, and we're going to come across two more signs today. We're going to read about the time when Jesus fed the 5,000, and also the time where Jesus actually walked on water. And what we want to think about, though, as we look at these signs and we recognize they are intended to point to something greater. And that greater purpose is recorded at the end of the Gospel of John. Why is John showing us all these signs? Here's the reason right here. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John's purpose is to bring us to a place where we can believe That Jesus is the Christ. Because when we come to that place of belief, then we can truly experience the life in His name that we were meant to have as followers of Christ. So I would invite you to join me in John chapter 6, if you would. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the row right there in front of you. And the Bible's there. It's on page 891. And this is what we see, starting John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So here we see a ginormous crowd that is following Jesus. But we can tell right away as we look at the text, Start thinking about why was this crowd following Jesus? And we can recognize what it says right here, verse 2. They were following because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. There were a lot of people in the crowd that day that were just spectators. They weren't necessarily interested in following Jesus' teaching. They weren't necessarily interested in committing their lives But they were spectators, they were safety in the crowd, and they could just kind of hang out and sit back and watch what was going on. Because in those days there was no internet, there was no TV, there wasn't even a Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. Right now, in this time, Jesus was the greatest show on earth. And everywhere he went, amazing things happened stories are circulating all through town. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he did? I wonder what's going to happen next. I mean, there's healing going on. There's all these miracles. There's a lot of people that are flocking around, even more so because John tells us this was the time of the Passover. It was a Jewish celebration where the people were celebrating, remembering the time that the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites back in Exodus And those who had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, their firstborn son was spared. That was the case with the Israelites, although not with the Egyptians. And that's what God used to free the Egyptians from bondage at that time. And what's ironic is that these people were celebrating the Passover and they're there in the presence of Jesus, but they don't even realize right there in their midst stands the true deliverer. Not one who would only deliver from slavery, but one who would deliver in an eternal sense from the bondage of sin. There were a ton of people there, but they didn't even recognize exactly what it was, the true significance behind what they were celebrating. So they had gathered, and here we see in our passage a little bit later on, this was a large crowd. The Bible says there were 5,000 men that were there in that place. What it does not say is how many women were there, how many children were there. So if we know there was 5,000 men, we can probably estimate there were around 15,000, maybe 20,000 total that were in the crowd that day. And I was trying to wrap my mind around numbers like that and say, what would that look like for us? If you've ever been to the Norfolk Scope and you were there inside the Scope, you can look around and see a pretty large arena. Seating capacity of the Norfolk Scope is 11,000. So imagine you were right there in the floor looking around at a crowd of that size wrapped all around you. And it was probably even a few thousand more than that. And that's where we find ourselves as we pick up in verse 5. So lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? This was a tough spot for the disciples to be in because they're there, they see this big crowd all around them, and all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, let's feed them. What you got? How are you going to solve this problem, Philip? What do you think? Philip had absolutely no idea, obviously, how to respond. Jesus was asking this question to test him. We saw last week as we looked at our passage, Jesus would often pose questions to people just to draw them out, just to kind of make them think a little bit, and then to verbalize, what is it that's on your mind? What are you thinking right now? What would you do in this situation, Philip? And Philip basically says, I got nothing. 200 denarii, that's eight months' wages. Even if we were going to spend eight months of wages on food, that wouldn't be enough to take care of the needs that are in this crowd today. Philip was thinking about money. Andrew was just thinking about, well, who do I know? What are the people that I can tap to help with this problem? But all he came up with, there was just this one boy who had this lunch, five loaves, two fish, not really a lot considering the needs of the people that surrounded them there in that place. So Philip didn't have a whole lot. Andrew didn't have a whole lot. Jesus was testing them because he was developing them as leaders. He was building them to be the disciples who would carry on the work of the church. And he knew what he was going to do, but he wanted to make them squirm a little bit because he knew that they would grow through that process. So as the story continues, this is what we see. In verse 10, it picks up and says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus knew all along that he was able to take care of the needs that were represented by the crowd that day. He didn't really need the money that Philip maybe could scrounge together. He didn't really need the five loaves and the two fish that Andrew was able to get from the boy who had come up and he had offered his lunch. Jesus understood what he was going to do. And the crowd, they were kind of thinking, all right, hey, we know that there is one who is to come who is going to be the prophet. Because they were familiar with the stories of the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 16, God provided manna for the Israelite people. That was during the time of Moses, so the people recognized, okay, Moses was a prophet, and he provided bread for the people. There was another instance with the prophet Elisha, and that story is in 2 Kings chapter 4, where God used the prophet Elisha to multiply food that was available, and Elisha was able to provide bread for the whole crowd even to the point of having leftovers. So the people recognized that. Okay, he did this in the Old Testament through these prophets, and now we have another prophet. This is the prophet who is able to provide for our needs. Let's make him king. What the people didn't recognize that day is that that was not at all the plan that Jesus had. As he was providing for their needs, it was a sign. It was intended to point to something greater. And what Jesus wanted to help the people to comprehend that day was this fact right here. We want to recognize this, that the spiritual needs are far greater than the physical needs. Only people in the crowd, they seemed to be pretty blind to that. They weren't even thinking along the lines of spiritual needs. All they knew was, my tummy is grumbling, I am hungry, I want a meal. And as soon as they got their meal, they thought, well, that's the end of the story. Perfect. If this guy can take care of my food, well, let's make him king. He's a miracle worker. He can give me everything that I need. And so let's just put him on the throne. And that way he'll take care of my needs. Give me everything I want. And they were completely blind to the fact that their spiritual needs were far greater than their physical needs. And Jesus didn't just come to meet physical needs. He used this whole story as a way of pointing to the truth he was going to express a little bit later on. In John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And Jesus was providing a meal that day because he wanted to use that to explain. Not just physical needs, I can take care of spiritual needs. When you come to me, when you commit to me, when you believe, when you surrender, all, all needs will be taken care of. Physical needs, done, spiritual needs, That's what you really need, and I'm the one who can deliver. Jesus wanted to help the people to understand that, but so many of them missed it in the crowd that day. And I wonder how many times we can think along those same lines and concentrate so much more on just physical issues rather than spiritual issues. I think if we look across our lands today and our nation, we have a lot of people who are far more concerned with the physical than the spiritual. I think we say, you know what, I've got food, I've got drink, I've got clothes, I've got shelter, I've got cars, I've got entertainment, I've got basically everything I need. Why would I need God? There's people who don't even recognize the fact that deep down on the inside, they're wasting away day in and day out, and there's all these spiritual needs that are going unmet. And that's what people need to recognize, and that's a challenge for us, because I think sometimes we can be guilty of the very same thing. It's easy for us to think more about physical issues than about spiritual matters. I think sometimes that can be reflected in our prayer lives. We always think about physical issues and physical concerns, and we want to pray for the sick, and we want to pray for healing, and we want to pray for those types of physical concerns, but I wonder how much of our prayers are also directed to spiritual matters. How often are we praying for the lost to come to know Christ, How often are we praying for our own spiritual lives, for more depth, for greater intimacy with Christ? How in tune are we to the spiritual needs going on in the lives of ourselves, our family members, those around us, our workplace, our neighborhood? I think many times we can focus on the physical a lot more and just be very easily satisfied as long as we don't see any glaring need right in front of our face. When Jesus would want to say to us the same thing he wanted to say to the crowd that day, not just about the physical stuff, there's something way deeper, way more important going on. Let's focus on the spiritual, because there are needs, and Jesus is the only one who is able to meet those needs. And so we see that. And what Jesus does here in this story is going to reveal who he is, and he wants the people to understand that. And we see that again here in our next sign. As we look at the story of Jesus walking on the water. Let's look at John 6:16 6, through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, "'It is I. Do not be afraid.'" Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What we see here is the story of Jesus walking on the water as another sign in the Gospel of John, but if we step back and we think about the story in light of how it's presented in other Gospels, Matthew and Mark as well, what we can recognize is that there were actually four miracles that took place in the span of these few short verses. We see that Jesus walked on water in John 6:19. We also see in the Matthew account Peter actually got out of the boat and walked on water in Matthew 14:29. We see that Jesus stopped the storm in Matthew 14:32, and also John 6:21 tells us that Jesus immediately brings the boat to its destination so there's all kinds of dynamics that are going on here and let's look at each of these briefly we see that Jesus was walking on water and there are some people out there who would say come on walking on water how in the world could Jesus possibly do that and to them those people I would pose this question have you ever seen Legos Let's think about this for a second. I have a nine-year-old son in my house, and a five-year-old son, and so there's a lot of Lego activity that happens where I live. And the cool thing about Legos is that you can build and you can design whatever you can imagine. As in the Lego world, you are the master of the universe. You can put together rocket ships and spaceships and airplanes. You can design buildings. You can design houses. You can set up a whole little town if you want. Here we have one of our Lego creations. This is a little spaceship, and here's a guy flying it. He's got a sword strapped to his back. got interchangeable heads and body parts and legs and weapons and all this cool stuff. Here we have a little Lego motorcycle, so you can ride around town. You can even have, if you want, one Lego guy fighting against another Lego guy. Here's a two-headed monster, and so he could battle with this guy. And there's all kinds of cool things that can go on in this Lego universe, but... As I look at these Legos, and as I think about that, I recognize that those Lego guys have limitations (laughs) that I don't have. If I'm the one who sets it up, and if I'm the one who builds it and designs it and makes it go the way I want it to go, I don't have to be limited in the same way the Lego guys are limited. I can do things they can't do. And the same thing is true if we think about Jesus, and as we think about this universe, because this is what we see. In John chapter 1, verse 3, we recognize that Jesus is the one who created all that is. We see here, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. On a much grander and more cosmic scale, Jesus is far high and above and beyond any of the limitations that you and I might know. He's the one who created this water. He's the one who came up with laws of gravity. He's not bound by those. He doesn't have the same limitations that you and I have. And so it's perfectly reasonable that Jesus would be able to walk on water, not just for fun, but as a sign to indicate who he truly is. We recognize that Peter was walking on water in Matthew 14 because Peter recognized that here he is in the boat and he wants to be where Jesus is. So he says, Lord, I want to come to you. And Jesus says, then get out of the boat and come to me. Peter leaves the comfort zone, leaves the safety of his friends, and gets out on his own and walks toward Jesus. And he experienced that supernatural power of Christ working in his life as long as he kept his eyes focused on Jesus. But we know from the story in Matthew that there came a point where Peter saw the wind, and he got distracted. He took his eyes off Christ, and he recognized there's a storm going on, and at that point, boom, that's when Peter began to sink Because he took his eyes off of Christ, and so he lost that supernatural experience that Christ meant for him to have. He was distracted, and as he was distracted, he wasn't able to do what Christ had called him to do. Jesus stops the storm. We see here in a couple of these Gospel accounts that immediately as Jesus entered the boat, he got into the boat with his disciples, boom, right away the storm ceased, the wind stopped, the water calmed down. No longer was there this crazy storm that was going on at sea. But if we think about this storm and recognize the full ramifications of what was happening there, Matthew and Mark, as they explain this account, make it clear that Jesus was the one who sent the disciples off in the storm in the first place. Jesus was the one who told the disciples to get into the boat and to go out to sea. And he knew full well what was going to be happening. Storms at sea would churn up all the time because of the way the air was moving and the warm air. And there would be this violent churning and storms would crop up all the time. It was in the middle of the night. They were in the middle of the lake. And yet Jesus had sent them to this very place knowing full well what they were about to experience. And we recognize here, as the disciples were making their headway painfully, according to Mark, it says in Mark 6.48 that while Jesus was in prayer, he saw the disciples were making headway painfully. They were in the dark, in the middle of the night, in this terrible storm, and Jesus was letting them go through all of this. Why in the world would Jesus put disciples in the middle of a situation like that, knowing they would experience this storm? Storms have a way, I think, of bringing perspective in our lives, because many times we rely on ourselves. And if I can take care of my needs and I can put it together and I can handle it myself, why would I rely on anyone else? Sometimes we can go through that way in our lives. Sometimes we recognize that Maybe I'm not so much in control of the situation. Maybe there are circumstances that I'm not able to control and make exactly what I want them to be. And we recognize, too, there's darkness. In the middle of the night, there was no light all around. And so the disciples are in a storm, and they're also in darkness. When you find yourself in a place of darkness, our first response is to go scrambling for a light. Electricity goes off at your house, We start looking for candles or flashlights or some source of light because we don't like to stay in darkness. And yet sometimes Jesus will use storms in our lives to help us recognize maybe we need to turn things over to Him and stop trying to do it all ourselves. Maybe sometimes He allows darkness because in those times we recognize we need the light of Christ to shine in our lives. And so those opportunities actually can be seen as evidences of the grace of God. He allows us to go through those experiences because those draw us in to develop a closer relationship with Christ. Warren Wiersbe has said that sometimes we go through storms of correction, that maybe we've gotten off track in our walk with Christ, and so correction storm comes into our lives to set us back up on the path of blessing. Sometimes maybe we have a storm of perfection because we've been going along okay on a certain route, but God wants to take us to a whole deeper level. So those storms of perfection might come into our lives ...to help us to go deeper with Christ and to be who He wants... ...and to experience His full power and His full blessing. Those storms sometimes that come into our lives can be a reminder of what God says in Philippians 1.6. It's a reminder that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And sometimes those storms are the means by which He completes those things in our lives. And our final miracle here that happens in those few verses... ...we recognize that Jesus brings the boat safely to its destination... Immediately, they were in the middle of the lake, and then, boom, once Jesus is on the scene, they've arrived at the shore safely at their destination. Have you noticed how, in each of these situations, Jesus meets people on exactly the level where they are, so that he can connect with them in that way and point them to something deeper, the crowd only recognize their hunger, so the meal is provided. The disciples recognize they're in the middle of the lake, and there's a storm, and they need help. So Jesus meets them right there on that level. And yet, that's not the end of the story. The reason he connects with them in that way is a sign. It's intended to point to something greater. And so we see that, and we recognize that Jesus has a whole lot going on, and it's a challenge for us, because what we see in those situations, is that all these different characters had taken their eyes off of Christ. Andrew, when he's trying to figure out, how are we going to have food for the crowd? He looks at this little boy who was there in the crowd. Philip, how are we going to get food for the crowd? Well, we don't have enough money. One's thinking about money. One is thinking about people. The disciples, they have no idea. When they're in the middle of the lake and the storm is going, they're not looking to Christ to save them from their circumstances. They're Distracted, They're off course. And there's a challenge for us in each of those opportunities, in those situations where we find ourselves, we can hopefully learn from their mistakes, and we can be people who will keep our eyes on the prize, keeping our eyes focused on Christ. Because here's a challenge for us. Pastor John Piper, also written a number of books, this is what he has to say. He says, you can't praise what you don't prize. And the flip side of that is that we praise Christ when we prize Him. When He is the supreme value in our lives, that's when we can live worthy of our calling. And that's when we can make the difference that God would want us to make in our world. If outsiders were to gaze from their outside perspective and to look at our lives, what would they say is most valuable to us? Would they look at our lives and say, Obviously, this is somebody who holds Christ to be in a position of supreme value. This person praises Christ by prizing Him, by putting Him in the place of first primary importance in their lives. It's a challenge for us, because when we look at what happened in the crowds throughout John chapter 6, we see that tons of people missed it. There were a lot of people that were only thinking about their physical needs. Jesus calls them out in verse 26, he says you only wanted this food because you wanted a full stomach. All you care about are physical needs. They missed it in John 6:66. 6, we see that tons of people walked away and followed him no longer. They weren't willing to make the commitment that Christ was asking them to make. We see that people missed it as we read John 6:28. In John 6:28, here we see the all important question. They said to him, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's a question that people all around the world today are asking. What work can I do to make sure I get to heaven? If I do enough good works, then that's going to be enough to win favor with God, to earn my ticket, punch my little ticket into heaven, into eternal reward. I'm going to earn favor with God by working the works of God. Okay, so what are they? What work am I supposed to do, Lord? If you just tell me the work that I do, I'll make sure that I get it done. And Jesus was never about giving people a list of works, efforts, all your good deeds. Those things will never get us to heaven. This is what Jesus says. He spells it out in John 6:29, And he says, you want to know what your work is? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's all about belief. It's not about the work that you can do. It's about surrendering to Christ. It's about turning your life over to him. That's the gospel. That's why storms come our way sometimes to remind us we can't fix it. We can't solve it. We need to surrender to Christ. That's the work that God asks to believe in Jesus, to believe in Christ as the true Messiah, to turn our lives ourselves over to him. And yet every day we battle unbelief. Anytime sins crop up in our lives, we know we have given in to unbelief in those areas of our lives. Every day, we want to keep our eyes on the prize to, to believe in Christ and to keep our, our eyes, our heart, our mind focused on Him. Because remember, this is why the signs are there. This is what John is telling us. These are written so that you would believe and that as you believe, You will have life in His name. And that's what Jesus wants us to have, and that's what He wants us to be able to pass on to others as well. In the Matthew story, as as Jesus was feeding the crowd of the big multitude of thousands and thousands of people, Matthew tells us that Jesus took the bread, gave it to the disciples, and then the disciples passed it out to the crowd. And I think there's a great lesson there for us because the disciples were the ones who passed out the bread so the needs could be taken care of. In the same way, you and I have the challenge, the privilege, the opportunity to be those who would pass the bread of life out to the crowds that are all around us, in our lives, and our worlds, and the places where Jesus would have us. It's our responsibility now to spread the bread of life around so that more and more can come to know Christ. Because if we think about where people are looking for answers today, many times they are not quick to just walk into the door of a church. Ed Stetzer is the head of LifeWay Research, and he wrote a book recently called Lost and Found, The Younger Unchurched and the Churches That Reach Them. And he studied the group of 20-somethings all across our land and trying to figure out the question, why is it that we don't see younger people in church quite as often? And what he found were these statistics right here. Many times people are not really looking for spiritual answers in church. The percentage of people who seek spiritual answers in church is only one in six, about 17%. So we don't want to sit back and wait for them to come to us. Shockingly, however, the percentage of people who would be willing to listen if a friend wanted to explain Christianity, 89%. Almost nine in ten people are willing to talk about matters of faith when we love them, when we build relationships with them, when we can cultivate a friendship so that they know our compassion, they know our heart for them, they know that we care, an astonishing percentage of people are willing to talk about it and to consider where true life can be found. So that's what we want to do, to live lives of worship, to praise Christ by prizing Him and lifting Him up and all we say and all we do. And as I think about worship... I recognize there's going to be a whole lot of worship that's going on today. Not necessarily in churches across our land, but this afternoon and tonight. Because today is the day the top two AFC contender, contenders will battle it out. And the top two NFC contenders will battle it out to see who is it that's going to the Super Bowl. And stadiums will be filled with people. They will have their faces painted. They'll show up for hours and hours ahead of time. They will pay tons of money to get into these events. Sports bars will be hopping. Living rooms will be full with people who are focusing on the game. And it's not that it's bad to watch football, but if that's what we live for, then we know something has gotten a little bit off track. There's a lot of people who are going to be focusing on this as their primary obsession. There's a lot of people that let sports or whatever else become the idol that takes first place in their lives. And so we want to be people who recognize that only Christ should occupy that position of first place and that position of worship because we know any other idol that could take the place of Christ will never fulfill and will never satisfy. And if you don't believe me, Listen to what Tom Brady had to say. Tom Brady, quarterback of the New England Patriots, one of the teams that are going to be playing today, here's what he had to say in an interview. thought you might find this interesting.
2: Tom Brady, quarterback
0: of the New England Patriots, is not
2: only one of the NFL's best players, he's one of the NFL's great stories. At the tender age of 30, he has already won three Super Bowls, an accomplishment that ranks him with some of the best quarterbacks ever to play the game. And he's having one of the greatest seasons in pro football history. When we first reported on him back in 2005, he seemed underrated and almost overlooked. He doesn't have the arm of Peyton Manning, and he doesn't have tattoos, and he doesn't take steroids, and he's never held out for more money. All he knows how to do is win. (laughs) what you always wanted. (laughs) You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. In addition to his success on the field and his sex appeal off it, there is also the $60 million 10-year contract to play with the Patriots. I mean, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could ever make playing football. (laughs) (laughs) But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and... And still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is. Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So there's got
1: to be more than Super Bowls and millions of dollars and fame and fortune. What's the answer? He wishes that he knew. And yet you and I know the answer is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the true bread of life. Have you received that bread of life? Have you come to a place where you have committed to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Only there will you truly find life. If you have received that bread of life, are you passing it on to others in your world? There's an eerie verse, if you really think about it, in this passage that we just saw today. In John 6:17. in the second part of that verse, it says, It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Does that describe anyone you know? People around you are wishing, wondering, waiting for you to bring them the bread of life. If you've received that bread yourself, who will you pass it on to this week? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, God who provides us with illumination and directs us, Father, to what those signs were pointing to all along. As we look at, How these stories play out in the Gospel of John, Lord, we recognize that the miracles are not just ends in themselves, God. They are intended to point us to something much deeper and greater. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, Father, to remember to keep our eyes on the prize of Christ in all we do each and every day of our lives. Lord, to focus on spiritual issues rather than just physical matters. To continue to grow in our walk with you, Lord, to be the people that you would want us to be. Because we recognize, Lord, there's darkness all across our land. We recognize there are many who need to know this bread, Father, this life. You've given us that responsibility to be those who will share the message. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that calling. Help us, Lord, to minister to those around us in your power, with your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we sing our final song today, I want to give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God would have you respond. If you need to know that bread of life and experience salvation for yourself, I would love to talk to you about that. We have others who would love to pray with you and talk to you about that. If you would like to join our church or make any other decision or have any kind of special prayer, we would love to be able to help you with that and invite you to come forward now during this time.
0: I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.